Good morning. Uh, welcome to our session about building community engagement through exhibit planning and partnerships. The panelists for the session this morning are Frank White, who is a local, not from Massachusetts, a local uh, research historian, and Melinda Ludwigzak, who is the MELSA program manager, and myself, I am Molly Spillman, curator and archivist at the Ramsey County Historical Society. For those of you who are not from Minnesota, uh, St. Paul is located in Ramsey County. Uh, Minneapolis is in a different county. Um, we will each describe our part of this story uh, and believe that each of you can take away components that would apply to your own communities and situations. We are being recorded in this session this morning, and so we'll all be speaking into a microphone. And if you would please wait uh, at the question and answer period that we've reserved till the end uh, for the microphone to come to you before you ask your question, AASLH uh, will be appreciative. So with that, I will introduce Frank White. This is going to be very difficult for me because, and Molly just laughed because either I didn't turn on the timer or I talk a lot. So we'd be here all day if she had let me do that. Or I would be anyway. You'd probably be some other sessions. Um, did you ever wake up one morning and go out and do whatever you did and then Sometime later, you went like, wow, that was like a tremendous day or a tremendous journey. That's what I've been on for probably about the last, uh, I would say, about eight years. And, and it started in a number of ways. I'm going to talk about that now, but then with a cup of coffee with Molly. Um, back in 2001, I took on a position while I was still working with the Minnesota Twins. And in the handouts that I gave you, I've kind of got some bullet points so to keep me kind of on track also, and, and then I'll answer more questions when we get to it later. So I joined the Minnesota Twins back in 2001, and I just completed my 14th season uh, running the RBI program, which is Reviving Baseball in Inner Cities. As I got involved with that, um, there, the RBI is about in including, attempting to include more African-American kids playing baseball. And I grew up playing baseball and watching my father. In 2004, uh, through a chance meeting with Buck O'Neill, I took my father back to Kansas City to meet his old friend and the person that he played against, Buck O'Neill. My father is on the right. Kwame McDonald is the gentleman who was involved in the media here in St. Paul. True, true friend, and, and all three of these gentlemen are no longer with us. In 2005, after this, this uh, interview at the Negro League Baseball Museum, I actually was the camera guy at, at this event, and it was wonderful. And, and during this whole event, people were going through the museum and stopping, and, and, uh, and they kept going into the doorway where there was a souvenir shop, and they kept opening up the door, and you could hear this little creak, you know, and I was like, okay, knock it off. But I didn't say that, but I wanted to. But they were all going in and getting something to be signed. 
Buck O'Neill was so gracious to my father because after the event, people went up and said, Mr. O'Neill, will you sign this? And as he signed it, he then handed it to my father. What it, it's, I, I can't talk about it because I'll start crying. So I, but it was a wonderful event. In 2005, this happened in 2004, in 2005, I decided to try to put together a few little items to stimulate more interest in baseball for African-American kids and their parents. So I contacted the Minnesota Historical Society and eventually talked to a woman named Kate Roberts and said, you know, you used to have an exhibit uh, and it included my father. And eventually she sent me a disc. I made a small display. Um, and then we hosted the Central Regional Tournament here in 2006 for the Minnesota Twins. And we rededicated Tony Stone Field, which is in St. Paul. Tony Stone is the first African-American woman to play in the Negro Leagues. At that event, I had a little bit of a display, not really intended to be an exhibit, just some things that I had gotten from the Negro League Baseball Museum and some other local things uh, with some pictures about Minnesota black baseball. In 2009, I took that little display that St. Paul Saints invited me to be at their Larry Doby Day because the current Saints owner is the son of Bill Vack. Mike is one of the owners here for the St. Paul Saints, which is an independent league, but professional baseball. From there, I was invited to an event at the Summit Brewery, also hosted by the historic St. Paul. Is that correct, Molly? Historic St. Paul. After the event, a gentleman came, one of the board members came up to me and said, you know, you really need to do more of this. You did a great job. Uh, that was very flattering. It was very nice. And I said, yeah, okay, well, I'm busy and wasn't really interested. But he made some phone calls and got back to me, which ended up leading to a cup of coffee with Molly on Thursday, December 5th in 2009, a couple blocks from here. I, at that uh, meeting, we talked about, Molly said, well, we'd love to do an, an exhibit. And I was like, I don't want to do an exhibit. I, I wouldn't even know what to do. So from there, she said, we'll do the production work if you can give us the material. That was, again, on December 5th, 2009. On February 10th in 2010, the exhibit opened a very short time. And I hadn't really researched a lot, but boy, did I start researching. In fact, I think my former employee didn't really like that. Just kicked me. Okay. From there, I, as I said, I continued to do research and, and, and it was so much fun for me. Um, I have probably put into, into this um, probably 300 hours at least in front of newspapers on microfilm. Uh, I've, I've read at some time or another about 20 books on black baseball or African-American history. 
And then also included in my research is my own personal life, my personal story, being with my father, traveling with him and watching him play for a team called the Twin City Colored Giants. Um, a team that was not in the Negro Leagues, but it was an all-black team here in Minnesota where guys played together because they couldn't play in any of the leagues that advanced to the state tournament in Minnesota because of segregated baseball. From there, as the, zip, as the exhibit uh, was, it did a run at the end of 2010 and into 2011, Molly contacted Melinda, and Melinda's going to talk a little bit more about that, but, but the exhibit ended up being able to tour or begin touring and, and since has done that. I share this this slide here this is an original score sheet and if I don't know if you can see but up in the right hand corner a gentleman showed me this as the exhibit was touring he came up to me before the event and said um, is this your father and he pointed to the name white kind of in the middle of the lineup there and I said well when is this and he pointed up in the corner and it says May 27th 1929 I was almost floored. I mean, I'm looking at the scorebook. It was a, it's a piece of history all by itself. And I said, well, no, that couldn't be my father. Or I'm sorry, that was May 29th, 1927. Excuse me. I said, well, it couldn't be my father because my father was born in, on February 29th, 1928. So it couldn't be him. But right in the middle of my, my presentation, I, my mind was going. I was still talking. And all of a sudden, I went, George White. And people looked like, what are you talking about? That wasn't even what you were talking about. But that's the player. George White is the gentleman that's listed there, as well as a few of the other players, Dulove, Hogan, and, and uh, Laf um, excuse me, Savannah Fields, and some other gentlemen that I had known their names, or family members as I grew up. What a treasure for me and for history. In that first year, uh, 2010, um, things were going so well with the exhibit. I was so proud, probably because for me in this, I, I'm, I'm telling a story. I'm, I'm telling a story of my, of my father and so many friends of his that, that played, but nobody knows who they are. So for me, this was a great piece of history. And this has been a great opportunity. This journey that I've been on is really been unbelievable for me because in my research, I've been able to find out that my great-grandfather's name was Furston White, and he came to Minnesota in 1896 with my great-great-grandmother. Um, I had a, he had another son named Art White that I, I had heard about my grandfather's brother, but I never knew, and he was a magician and also one of the, Saint, the first black African-American firemen in St. Paul. I've been able to learn so many things. I'm close friends with the Winfield family, Dave Winfield. I don't know if anybody knows that name or not. He happens to be a, not a bad baseball player. 
or or was not a bad baseball player. So, but we're like family, and I could find that his grandfather passed away in Duluth, Minnesota, and and they knew about it. But I found the article that that described it. So, research for me has become just a completely educational thing, uh, an opportunity to learn. Uh, there's a gentleman named Leo Lewis who was a tremendous football player, played in Canada, and his son also played for the Vikings. And I called him one day. I said, Leo, did, did you know your father played baseball? He said, no, Frank, I didn't. I said, I'm going to send you a couple articles. So, uh, again, I've been able to discover so many different things just through reading and through research. John Lindley, who was in the audience right over here, and Molly said, we think we'd like you to write an article for our quarterly magazine. And this is the cover. And, and uh, I love to talk, but I hate to write. <laughs> so I think I'm a storyteller. And eventually I ended up putting my story to the pen or to the computer, whichever way you want to say it. And uh, did an article, and that article ended up, I think, believe, or excuse me, I believe was very well received, which started a whole nother process. But in the story, I've been able to share so many different things about my life or little things that occurred when I traveled with my father in this whole thing called Minnesota Black Baseball. After the magazine article and continued research, because I did continue because I got excited about continuing to try to update the exhibit continually. I also have a website, and in the handout that I shared with you, I have uh, my website address on there, which will I'm calling a museum without walls on Minnesota Black Baseball because I'll continue to upload, download things onto that site that will be available for resource for other people and especially young people. For me, this whole story is about some great baseball players, some great athletes that people just don't know. But it's also about denial, segregation, and things that happen in Minnesota that people just wouldn't believe because we weren't in the South. But I grew up here. Things like salting people's food, not able to stay in hotels in downtown St. Paul or Minneapolis. Um, signs that said, hamburgers, 25 cents, Negroes, 75. Covenants that said you couldn't live in certain places. So this whole story to me is so special. It's been such a great opportunity. And when I sat down with Molly on December 5th, 2009. I had no idea. I'm, I'm one of those people that I always take on too many things. And I probably talk too much. My daughter said, Dad, you talk too much. And I, said, and I can't help it. <laughs> All of that to say, then there's been a, after the article and some other research, people said, oh, you should write a book. That was never one of my goals in life. But I'm happy to say, I'm proud to say that 
you're looking at least one of the cover options of a book that's going to be released in the near future. And again, for me, it's just a proud time to be able to share a story, especially about my father, some very good friends, friends of my father's, people that I knew, people that I respect, that grew up at a time here in Minnesota that we just don't have an idea about. So this has been a wonderful journey. And now I'll sing. <laughs> no, I won't. So that's kind of a, a general story. Uh, I, I will be available later. I'm sure that Molly and Melinda are going to add some additional. I know they're going to add in some additional details. It, it's just been a great, great opportunity for me, and, and I never expected it to lead to where I am today. So, But I'm doing it because I'm trying to honor those individuals that need to, be, that need to have a place in our history. My name is Melinda Ludwizak. I'm a program manager at MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency. We're one of 12 public library regions in Minnesota who receive federal and state funding, and then we provide services and support to our member libraries. And so in our community, I work with eight library systems, the systems of the seven counties in Minnesota, and then the St. Paul Public Library. And is this a little better? And um, we have one, over 100 libraries in our system, and we serve a third of the population in Minnesota through our system. And uh, there are about 350 libraries in Minnesota total, public libraries total. Um, and how many of you have been hearing about the legacy amendment and the legacy funds as you've been here? Well, in 2008, the citizens of Minnesota voted for an amendment that created a special uh, sales tax that went to four funds, and one of those funds is the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. A big portion of it goes to the State Arts Board and the Minnesota Historical Society, but smaller pots of that fund go to some other organizations, including some of the museums, public media, public television, public radio, and the Minnesota's public libraries. So we're very fortunate to have a piece of this fund and, you know, it's like, what would you do if you got a million dollars a year to do programming that you never had before? So that was, that, that's our, our fortune. And um, so we've had to ramp up a lot of infrastructure and support to our libraries to provide uh, services and uh, programming to the public. We are, are, by law, mandated to use our funds in four areas. So the arts, which is pretty broad, um, culture, another broad category, history, and literary programming. So we do programs with authors and around creative writing. We divide our funds at MELSA into three areas. We do region-wide uh, or statewide programming. So one of, for example, one of those programs is supporting History Day, where we do History Day hullabaloos at our libraries to help students do better research and work with the collections in their communities and the resources. 
And um, as a result of that, we find that more students are participating in the program and the level of their submissions has, has improved greatly. Um, we also support the Minnesota Book Awards and other things on a statewide basis. Then we do regional projects, and that's where this touring exhibit came out of. And then each of our eight library systems gets their own portion to do local programming where they've decided what they want to do. So to give you an example, the Anoga County Library System used to do 10 programs a year for adults. With this money, they're now doing 100 programs for adults. So that's tremendous growth for us in developing new audiences, looking at new projects and um, new events. So this is one of those types of a new project for us. And um, it all started over a glass of wine uh, as far as our involvement in this. So it was very serendipitous. Uh, I was a member of the Minnesota Association of Museums where we gather on um, probably a quarterly basis at various museums and facilities, kind of a behind the scenes look at what's going on there. And so I was at the Science Museum of Minnesota and I met staff from the Ramsey County Historical Society and they were, um, I was saying, we need to, to do more outreach to the historical societies and programs here in the state and figure out how we can use our legacy funds at, for the libraries and work with you all to provide those services. And the, the people at RCHS were like really excited and said, come to the museum. And Molly gave me a tour of this exhibit that was on display. And I said, oh, we have to take this out. We have to take this out to the community so more people can see it. So we looked at um, what, um, putting all that together. And uh, we had six libraries, although Frank reminds me it is eight libraries who hosted the exhibit. He did four programs for the public. And we had a lot of local media uh, impressions because of that. As soon as the people in Belle Plaine, Minnesota, found out this was happening, the librarian there called the local media. They came over and immediately did an interview with Frank and Molly as they were installing the exhibit. So it was those kinds of stories that happened. Um, the total costs for this uh, were um, 11000 about $500. Um, we paid a rental fee to the Historical Society to fabricate the panels that would travel to the libraries with this exhibit. So we were paying for that curation and um, fabrication and other materials. Um, we also found, we tried to design this as a self-service exhibit where it just got delivered to the library and they could put it up. Didn't work that way because the first exhibit uh, Frank went to and said, these things are out of order, and <laughs> so we quickly revamped our process, and I found some more funding, and so we, we paid for Molly to go in and do the installation so that there was the right sequence and the right um, uh, look for the, for the exhibit. And then we also can use our funds to enhance our library's collections. So we, purchase, we allowed each system who hosted the exhibit to purchase some materials that Frank and Molly and I curated. And so on the, on the rack card that went with the exhibit, you'll see the suggested reading list that we helped the libraries purchase more copies of. And those things just flew off the shelves. They were very um, well used and um, and circulated during these um, exhibits. We also uh, used a little for promotion that was printing the rack card. And then uh, we provided funding to Frank and some of his colleagues to um, do the programs. 
So the lessons that we learned from this project were this is not a self-service exhibition. Uh, we had to uh, look at doing a better job of, of the installation and supporting our library staff. We also realized that we needed more lead time for the programming um, and to get the word out so that people, we had a little better attendance. We also discovered that the public was engaged in this project from the outset. Um, the very first day this exhibit was up at the Maplewood Library, um, people were calling to tell us that we had a name misspelled on one of the panels. So, I mean, we knew they were reading the, 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 the didactics, they were interested in the topic, and enough to tell us that we had an error. Um, we also uh, needed to work on our library staff engagement. Uh, a lot of times what happens in, when we do something on a regional level is the word comes out to me from the leadership to the leadership at the eight library systems, and then they decide, oh, well, we'll put this at this library. It works better if I have more buy-in at the local library level and the staff at that location. And where that happened, um, it was a much more successful program. And they did a better job of outreaching to their local media, um, hosting the program with Frank. And we also discovered that um, anytime the word got out about this story, the local media loved it. They were doing t local television, they were doing local newspapers, the libraries were putting this on their website and in their print publications, and so the word was getting out. The other byproduct of all of this, as Frank went out to, and Molly went out to the various communities, they were hearing stories from people, and Frank can give you a little more detail on that, but people would come up to Frank and tell him more of the story, pieces that they knew about, pieces where I used to work at the Met Stadium in Bloomington, and I knew this person, and, that, and, the, and the story would just continue and continue as he gathered more information in being out there with the public. So um, we were just thrilled to have this exhibit and tell this, help tell this story and bring it out to people in Shakopee and Belle Plaine and Anoka and the Rondo community of uh, St. Paul where a lot of this story started. So we were real um, um, deliberate in getting this exhibit at that neighborhood library. And I think Frank had one of the best um, public programs receptions because a lot of people who came to that um, library knew this story or knew people who were mentioned in the, in the material. And so it was a win-win for us. Um, uh, we, wanted, we would like to do more of this um, history kind of uh, exhibit. Right now we do more photography kinds of uh, traveling exhibits. So we would like to do more. So I'm, I'm waiting to see what more we can do. So uh, I'll let Molly come up and um, continue our story. Good morning again. I will advance to our first slide. A little bit of information about Ramsey County Historical Society to start. Uh, we are a private nonprofit membership-based organization, again, that's based here in St. Paul. Uh, we have four full-time and four uh, part-time permanent staff and 12 seasonal staff. We are uh, maintaining and operating three main programs. One is a living history site, uh, Gibbs Museum of Pioneer and Dakota Life in a nearby suburb. Uh, it is a living history site that um, discusses the overlapping lives and um, 
differences in life ways uh, of a pioneer settlement family and a Dakota band uh, that lived nearby and their interactions over time. Uh, we publish a quarterly magazine, as Frank mentioned, uh, that is a member benefit, uh, membership-based. We have about 800 members, uh, but the magazine is available in some local uh, bookstores as well. And then third, we have collections uh, in a research center in Landmark Center, uh, which is the nearby building where this exhibit first premiered, uh, and that's, again, uh, one of the main venues for our artifact collection in that exhibit gallery. Uh, Landmark Center, again, is nearby. Uh, it was opened in 1902 as a federal building, so um, it's quite ornate inside um, and now operates as an arts and culture center. Uh, if you're walking around, it's just a couple blocks from here. It's uh, Richardsonian Romanesque in style, so you can't really miss it. It's the only castle-looking building downtown. Um, it has scaffolding all over it right now, yes. Uh, they're re-roofing it and, and tuck-pointing it, so it's not as beautiful as it might be, uh, but it will be more so uh, in about a year. <laughs> We've been covered in scaffolding for about a year. Um, as Frank discussed, when the exhibit planning process started uh, in late 2009, Ramsey County Historical Society recognized that this exhibit would have widespread appeal, uh, not only to African-American communities here, but uh, to sports fans and local, um, just interest in local history uh, in central Minnesota. Uh, the largest, the, the earliest or the last um, large-scale exhibit about this topic was done by the Minnesota Historical Society in 1987 uh, that Frank mentioned with Kate Roberts there at MHS. So it had been over 20 years since this topic had really been broached in a public um, exhibit way. With this in mind, we wanted to design the exhibit to travel, uh, not really having MELSA in mind at that time, but they were our biggest uh, supporter, as it turns out. Um, and so we knew that we were going to be designing this as kind of a flat uh, panel exhibit and uh, hoping that, as we did, we could enhance, uh, the recipient locations could enhance the exhibit uh, with their own stories and uh, objects and programs. We did create a few panels that were specifically for us, however, that fit our cases, and that's what you're seeing in the upper left-hand corner. Uh, we have a large case. And again, uh, there weren't many artifacts available for this show, so we uh, created panels that fit inside the case. Uh, the orange one that you see on the left, uh, when flat, um, is about nine feet long. So most recipient locations couldn't deal with something that large. They were offered, uh, but no one, I, I know Melsa didn't take it, and I don't think we really took it out to too many locations. Uh, Frank conducted the research and writing, and then, as he mentioned, we designed uh, and uh, did the layout for the panels. We also secured the permissions uh, for any photos that he had selected that weren't privately held. Uh, he did that, that work. Uh, the exhibit is arranged chronologically, but uh, again, it's, it was a big show to begin with. It had 18 panels. Uh, it's larger now. But um, we, we anticipated that recipient locations couldn't handle that much linear feet. Uh, I do have some examples of the panels there. Uh, so some of their uh, content uh, can be broken out into to smaller vignettes uh, so that we could kind of chunk it up uh, in, a various, in, the, in the variety of, of locations that we inherited. Um, we chose styrene for the panel material uh, because it's inexpensive and it's lightweight and it's durable. Um, the panels to the right uh, are examples from this show. Uh, we liked it so well, it was so successful that we actually have used this material and this layout for future, uh, for subsequent uh, traveling shows that we did. Uh, each one of those panels printing is about $34 a piece. 
as I said, artifacts were hard to come by, so we did a lot with reproduction materials, jerseys and caps, that sort of thing, um, mostly from the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City. Uh, we also borrowed a uniform from the Great American History Theater here in St. Paul uh, that was Tony, it was a reproduction of Tony Stone's uniform, again, that Frank mentioned, uh, a local woman who played in the Negro Leagues. When the exhibit opened in 2010, we anticipated that it would run for six months. We ended up extending that by two months, uh, pushing other exhibits out a little bit just based on um, the public interest and, and desire to see it uh, for a little bit longer. Uh, word of mouth certainly did uh, help us uh, in, in all of the metro area um, in, in getting the word out and, and increasing interest in the show. About half of the initial hard cost, uh, including the panel printing, of that first run was covered by a small grant by the, uh, from the Minnesota Twins Baseball Club, and that really is thanks to Frank's uh, association with them over the years. We hosted five evening presentations, um, and the highest attended uh, one was when uh, Twins players uh, participated. We also partnered with the St. Paul Saints, uh, which Frank also mentioned, uh, which is an independent uh, local professional team uh, that has a tremendous following. Um, lots of sort of sideshow things happen at the Saints games. Uh, but they really took an interest in this exhibit. Again, uh, some of their players were, were featured. And they uh, invited one of their former players who was living in Chicago to come and throw out the first pitch. Uh, at a game, they did a baseball card of him. And they put all of our contact information on the back of the baseball card and gave that away to everybody who attended, which was great. Based on the positive reception of this exhibit, uh, the twins really were very supportive and asked us to host a number of events uh, or be a, a, a part of a number of events, uh, including Jackie Robinson Day celebrations uh, and uh, all-star game uh, participation where we were able to take some of the exhibit's uh, components uh, and, and be a part of that with a very large attendance in both of those. Uh, the Jackie Robinson Day celebrations also included the Minnesota Black Chamber of Commerce, uh, and they also bust in a lot of school children, uh, which was sort of unique for this exhibit for us in Landmark. Um, that gallery space is not particularly conducive uh, to guided tours or having big groups in that space. Uh, while the sports-related um, events and publicity that, that cost us nothing uh, certainly gave us uh, great PR, uh, the biggest audience generator was certainly the MELSA um, grant um, that toured the exhibit for a year through all of the, the eight libraries, I guess. Um, similar to Landmark Center, libraries, I think, are uh, sometimes a good uh, accidental place to see and learn uh, history. Um, through comment cards and emails uh, and guest registers in the libraries, we learned that often visitors that had some interaction with the exhibit had never intended to come and see the exhibit there. They came for a different sort of program uh, or to, to just visit the library, but they did have um, some interaction with the exhibit that was most often positive. Uh, also, as Melinda discussed, uh, local media coverage on this was tremendous uh, during the MELSA run, uh, not only with the local uh, towns, but also just within their own, the library's built-in system of publicity. Uh, again, something that cost us nothing. Uh, we were just simply added into their long list of, of tens of thousands of people that could be reached uh, for library programs. Uh, each installation at the libraries did hold some challenges. Um, 
And often, honestly, a lot of it had to do with what the wall materials were. Um, libraries, some of them were quite new, didn't want us putting any sort of Velcro or any sort of adhesive uh, on their walls. And again, it was, it was just different. At each installation, they sometimes had walls, uh, the wire grid walls. Uh, sometimes we were mounting into casework that they had or on end caps. So uh, the kit that I ended up using by the end uh, is, is impressive uh, with a lot of different adhesives from 3M uh, that are removable, the little uh, pull glue stick sorts of things. Um, installation creativity was definitely the key uh, in the MELSA installations, uh, mostly. Uh, we've taken the exhibit as well to other short-term community events. Uh, Rondo Days is one. Um, that is a historically African-American community. Uh, again, where many of the players lived, uh, grew up, where traveling players would stay, because that's the only place they could stay, uh, based on segregation restrictions here. Uh, MELSA and some of the other Venues uh, did pay us uh, to bring the exhibit as a rental fee or also for just curation of, of various components and program assistance. Uh, the total Ramsey County Historical Society costs uh, that were not covered, uh, which would be just soft costs, uh, time, and design uh, on our staff's part uh, for this exhibit from the beginning to today is about $20,000. Uh, that was part of what we absorbed um, into our own budget uh, to create this exhibit and, and maintain it. As I said, the, the exhibit started at 18 panels. Today it's 26. Uh, more information keeps coming, and that allows this exhibit to become vibrant, uh, uh, maintain its, its importance in the community, and maintain uh, an ongoing audience. Uh, there are always new components in this exhibit. It is a flat, static exhibit, but the information keeps growing, and so that does allow for repeat uh, visitation uh, to the show. Through the exhibit, um, through the development and, and uh, touring of this exhibit, Ramsey County Historical Society has uh, developed new partnerships within uh, many communities in St. Paul and outside of, of Ramsey County. Um, we have become a recognized partner in, Af in the African-American community now and uh, are often consulted for new events and programming in public buildings uh, and some privately owned events as well. So what began uh, for us as a small project has grown and uh, led to a, a really progressive series of community engagements uh, that I think can be maintained and um, can be applied, hopefully, uh, to your own institutions and community stories. So with that, I will close and ask if there are any questions. Yes, let me see if we can get a mic to you. Thank you. Sure. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what software programs you use to design your panels. <laughs> I would be happy to. Um, and then you'll all laugh. Um, we are an historical society. We're not a design firm. And so we actually designed these panels in Microsoft Publisher. Uh, <laughs> It was quite painful uh, and, and tedious and continues to be because that's still the software we're using. Um, then we export into a PDF and that's what goes to the printing company. But it, it's awful. Uh, if you can work with a design team, and again, that's just our, uh, for this sort of work, uh, if you can work with anybody on your staff that has more of a design background and working in uh, really <laughs> design systems, uh, that would behoove you, I think. Any other questions? to you and maybe Frank a bit. Um, I'm just curious if there's any strings in the story 
that make it relevant to, uh, you know, possible display in places like, you know, Duluth, I think you mentioned, but Rochester, Red Wing, whatever, uh, other places in outstate Minnesota, did some of the players come from there, things like that that would make it a uh, good opportunity for diversity and whatnot. And then I was also curious, if it did come out to outstate, have you thought of prices or any of that, you know, that it would cost to get it in to different places? Um, great question, and, and, and thank you for asking. I'll give you the $10 later. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I, I, th I think it is relevant all over the state. Obviously, um, or I shouldn't say obviously. For me, it's obvious, but for some of you, you have no idea. So, I, But African-American people really lived all over Minnesota, and... and uh, as you go from the 20s, the 30s, and into the 40s, Negro League teams actually barnstorm through Minnesota. And, and so as they did that, sometimes guys would end up saying, you know what, Minnesota's pretty nice. I, I think I'm going to stay here. And, so, and there was a great connection between Chicago and, and St. Paul that I was really not aware of until I got into the research and realized that trains went back and forth two or three times a day. Um, and even into Keokuk, Iowa, but but there is relevance. There there are especially in in baseball. Uh, baseball has such a, a rich tradition here in and legacy in Minnesota. There were leagues all over Minnesota uh, going back into the twenties, and every baseball was was a, the sport. It was America's great pastime. So there were leagues like the Western. Uh, Minnesota League, the Northern Minnesota League, and and there was a uh, the probably the biggest and most successful was called the Southern Mini, uh, Southern Minnesota League, and and uh, so many of, pardon me, Southern Mini, all of the Southern Minnesota area, uh, Southern Minnesota, uh, Rochester, Austin, uh, a number of teams would, uh, a number of towns would have their own town team. And they were semi-pro. I, they, you know, guys would get paid like twenty-five. Uh, <laughs> um, get paid to play, and and uh, they would have shares in the team and things that would be left over at the end of the year. They would divide. Uh, one of the one of the players that I've that I interviewed actually down in Austin, Minnesota, is from St. Paul. Went to St. Paul Central High School, but he ended up uh, he was a white gentleman and or Caucasian gentleman and played in the Dodgers system and couldn't make it and uh, had a tremendous his last year playing out in Idaho somewhere out there wherever I can't remember the name but uh, he was with one of the minor league teams from the Dodgers and he hit like about 345 and had a hundred and twenty some RBIs and he couldn't break the team but back in that time there were only 16 major league teams and the Dodgers happen to have this center fielder named Duke uh, Snyder, so <laughs> he wasn't he wasn't going to remove Duke, and so he ended up actually coming back to play in the Southern Mini League, and he got paid like I think it was either twenty five or thirty five dollars a game in the Southern Mini League. They played three games a week, sometimes tournaments. So he actually the pay that he 
Yeah, he would. Yes, but 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 and and I'll. So so the Southern Mini League was was one of the highest levels of play here, other than the American Association, which was the Millers and the Saints or the St. Cloud Rocks. So in that, um, that Southern Mini League also was segregated. So a lot of the guys couldn't play. But sometimes, again, the barnstorming players would come through here. And uh, and 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 so there is a, a lot of history. Guys that, that played in those leagues, um, Howie Schultz, Bud Grant, Paul Gill, there Ted Klazuski, I some some of you young people are like, who are those guys or whatever? So, look and she's laughing. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> but but there there is such a rich history here that I believe in, in Duluth uh was one of the big largest populations, African American populations in the state. And and not, and part of that also was because of ships coming up through the lakes or whatever. So so there's a number of reasons that I believe that long story to say that it would be relevant uh, in probably, you know, like the in each place, central Minnesota, southern and northern, there is a reason to tell the story because it also includes baseball centered around baseball. But it also talks about the history of the state and African-Americans being here in the state of Minnesota. So it would be wonderful with book signings. <laughs> What we've often done, and in, in one example is in Bloomington, Minnesota, which is where the Met Stadium was, uh, we added panels just for them. So when we travel it uh, outside of kind of the core of, of the state, uh, we try to, if we can, um, expand the story and create more panels uh, that relates to whatever the region is. So de depending on how much of that there there would be, if there would be any, that would dictate the cost. But certainly we're traveling it. Uh, we're at 26 panels now that look just like that, uh, that size. Um, so my cards are over there. Call me. We'll see what you're talking about. <laughs> um. Soon, uh, <laughs> um, let me, if I could just go back to what Molly mentioned and, 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 and Melinda also mentioned that as I went out, there were a, a number of times that people would come up and say, well, what about this story? And, and in, in that, and this goes back to the relevance of, 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 of touring in Minnesota, and, and I also will share with you that the exhibit is going to the, to the Cathedral of Black Baseball in Kansas City, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, so I'm, I'm truly honored uh, for that. But one of the gentlemen that where I showed you the uh, score sheet, his name is um, Lyle Gearhart. And so for any of you that are from Minnesota, Lyle Gearhart's father, Robert, um, their team was called the Oxboro Heath team, which is out in the Bloomington area. And um, he owned all of the land that Met Stadium was built on. Or for some of you younger people that are visitors or whatever and go to Mall of America, all of that land. And, and so in that, uh, we ended up doing a, an event with Bloomington, and we really made the uh, the tour not only about the exhibit but also the connection to Bloomington because that's where the Minnesota Twins really began here in Minnesota in 1961. 
but the Minneapolis Millers also played in that stadium, Met Stadium, from 56 to 60. So there was a whole nother separate piece just for Bloomington that there was such a great connection to the Gearhart family and the history of the twins and, and all of that type of stuff. So. Hi, um, I actually have a, a question for Mr. White. <laughs> My name is Katie Ringsmith. I am a cur senior curator of history at the Anchorage Museum in Alaska. We are uh, celebrating our Anchorage centennial next year. And uh, not only am I a history curator, big baseball fan. So we are, I'm in the process of curating an exhibit on baseball in Alaska in the north. And uh, looking at some of our historical photos, I found a photo of early baseball, 1915, Anchorage. Uh, and the team is uh, being photographed. And there is an African-American. And it was really wonderful because Anchorage is a hundred language city, something that very few people know. And not to mention very few people know there was an Alaska baseball league too. Satchel Paige came up and played in Anchorage in an exhibition game in 1965. He was going to start a team up there right after the Alaska earthquake called the Alaska Earthquakers. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, to make a very long story short, your friend, Dave Winfield played in Alaska, and I have a wonderful baseball card of uh, Dave Winfield in a big fur coat taking a swing at a baseball. So um, I just think there's uh, wonderful connections here and stories that go from the local um, beyond. And uh, I guess the, the question I have is if you'll ask your friend Dave <laughs> come up and speak in Anchorage, Alaska, uh, because I'm sure we'll fill any building that that he would uh, decide to speak at, and we'll probably take him fishing too. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, there, I, I am aware of David playing up. He actually played two seasons up there, as did Dave Kingman and a number of, or some other people. But um, interesting story, and I can tell you later about that because that really led to David playing every day for the Gophers. David was recruited. Uh, to play at the University of Minnesota as this outstanding pitcher. But he was a very talented individual. Um, and the coach at the time, Mr. Siebert, when David said, well, I would like to play every day, Mr. Siebert said, we don't need you to play every day, you just pitch in, 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 in that rotation. Well, David went and played for the gold pan handlers, I think it was, and one of the one of the years that that league was along the west coast and it was everybody the who's who of everybody in college baseball that played in that league david in his second year led the league in home runs and rbis well when he came back and told mr siebert obviously it was across the country of what his accomplishment was so it was pretty hard for mr siebert to deny david from playing every day and, and I share that because David ended up going into the major leagues and, and uh, right, right from uh, the College World Series, being the MVP, even though they didn't win, and going to the Padres and, and on and on. David is like my brother. And, and uh, so uh, we have a great relationship. In fact, he has done the forward to the book. And so little marketing piece. And come on, man. 
<laughs> so I, I will ask, I, and even though we are close, I, I will share that story because it would be interesting to me. I mean, he does speak all over across the country, and, and he is now with the Players Association, and uh, he has taken on a new position and has left the Padres. Um, so I, I will mention that if you give me your card and information, I will make sure that he gets that. And that in itself is a whole nother wonderful story. And his relationship with Coach Siebert, um, if we had a couple of days, I'd love to tell you the story. So. Just a quick one for Melinda. Um, you're not the only librarian in the room. <laughs> so I wanted to ask uh, the source of your legacy funding. Was it Library Legacy? Was it Minnesota Historical Society? No, it's, it's a separate appropriation to public libraries. So the money is appropriated to the state library okay. uh, office, and then it's distributed on a formula based on population and number of libraries, and then there's a geographic uh, formula too. So if you live in a sparsely populated community, there's a little extra money to help deliver service. So, um, and that changes a little bit and the appropriation is done. We're not guaranteed this fund. So we have to go to the legislature every two years uh, to get our fund for the biennium. And the first year, uh, two years, we had a nice generous support and then it got cut the second biennium and then the third biennium we've been e flat funded even funded so but we're just so grateful to have these funds to do this kind of kind of work yes yes right Well, each, each region um, dist distributes their fund a little differently depending on their politics and the kind of library system they are. And um, in our community, um, ours, our group is, is like an affiliated system. So each one of our eight library systems is independent. They do their own cataloging and purchasing, et cetera. And, um, and we support them. Now, some other systems like uh, uh, Saint, the St. Cloud, the Great River system, uh, they really operate all of their libraries. And so it really depends. And some of the libraries, they also do a grant process. So they're uh, soliciting uh, projects from the local community to use the funds with the library. So it just depends on, on the, the system. Any other questions? Excellent. Thank you so much.